Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to uh, Children's Church. Your teacher will, hey, can you throw the graphic up real quick, the sermon graphic? While they're going, I just wanted to introduce something because there were some good jokes about the graphic. <laughs> there were some really, we have some creative people in our church, and when they see something like that, they get creative. And so I just want to explain what that, what that is um, because it's not quite as obvious as I had hoped. <laughs> what that is is it's a, a, a Persian uh, band playing music, and it comes from this book by Sir Robert Porter, Travels in Georgia, Persia, and etc. Um, from 1817. So this uh, British explorer traveled throughout Persia. He saw this, and this is the rubbing he took from some inscription. So what that is, is it's um, a, a team of musicians. The one on the um, far right, your far right, <laughs> is playing a bagpipe. And then the next one, it looks like a psaltery with like uh, strings. And then the dog-headed boy in the middle is playing flutes and that kind of stuff. So that's what that is. It's, it's supposed to represent the Psalms because they're ancient. And so we won't use that graphic anymore. <laughs> that will not be in next year's Advent series. <laughs> but I did want to commend you for your creativity in, in um, turning these into other things, especially the dog-headed boy. Uh, so... Um, that's all you're going to see now for the I've ruined Advent for you. I, I beg your pardon. So uh, before we turn to the word, let's, let's open in prayer, and then we'll, we'll uh, hear from God's word. Um, uh, Lord, we, we thank you for this season of Advent and the anticipation, the look, looking forward to uh, God coming in the flesh. Um, as we sang about Emmanuel, uh, God with us. Lord, that just struck me this morning. What a huge statement that is that the eternal God, the God who existed before time, before matter, before anything else, who is eternally blissful in the Trinity, Lord, that you would take on humanity and come and be with us is, is beyond comprehension. We, we take it for granted sometimes, I think, but it is an amazing thing that you would desire to be with your creation so much that you would take on the limitations, the frailty of humanity and come and be with us. Thank you for doing that. And I pray that we would um, that we would continue to honor and, and bless you for what you've done, Lord. Um, and Father, I want to pray for uh, for uh, some uh, other ministries that they would be faithful in carrying that beautiful message around the world. Lord, I pray for Daniel Holmquist as he's traveling uh, this week to uh, Eastern Europe to do training with uh, church planters and and to seek out other opportunities. Lord, I thank you for his ongoing ministry. Uh, to lead and to teach and to equip people around the globe to strengthen your church globally. And we pray that you'd go with him, that you would keep him safe, that you would connect him uh, with the, the people that he needs to, not just physically being in the same room, but, Lord, that there would be a spiritual bond that can only be found in Christ. And so go with him as he, he uh, seeks to strengthen your church. Father, we pray for Bob Burris, who is this week in um, Liberia, and we pray that uh, you would give him success in teaching the pastors there how to preach Old Testament narrative. Uh, Lord, that's a, a, a tricky subject for even trained pastors. And some of the pastors that he'll be dealing with are, are untrained. And so um, I know Bob is really good at it. Lord, would you bless his effort, his work with, uh, with those pastors? And, and again, Lord, would you strengthen your global church through the ministry of these men? And Lord, I want to pray one more time for Revive AV as they're having a vote this morning, or this, this morning, this after church service, uh, for the future of, uh, of the folks and what they're going to do. Lord, I pray that 
you would be with um, with Pastor Jeff as he's preaching your word. Lord, would you be with the congregation as they're considering options and considering what to do? And Lord, I, whatever you have decided for them, I pray that they would have great unity around that. And so Lord, lead them into what comes next for that, that group of believers. And we pray your blessing on them. We thank you for the wonderful things that you've done through that church and, and give them a direction for the future, we pray. And Lord, most importantly now, because we're very selfish, or I am anyway, be with us, would you please? Would you help us to see and to understand your word? Lord, um, help me to say what needs to be said and to not say what doesn't need to be said. But Lord, above all, would you be glorified in the preaching of your word? Be with us as we do this. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're in, in Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is what's called an imprecatory psalm. And that's your, your $9 seminary word. I'll explain it in a little bit. Um, and what I was surprised is how rich in the New Testament this imprecatory psalm is, and I'll explain why that was surprising too in a minute. Uh, but what happens here is this is a psalm of David, and it, it goes through, this poem goes through basically four movements. And how you divide it up is kind of subjective, but this is how I decided it looked good. Uh, how I thought it would work is it goes through these four movements. It starts with the threats I face, the reproaches I bear, the imprecations, not implications, but imprecations, and then finally praises that I bring. Can I move, bring up? Aim that at my nose, right? Um, so it's threats, reproaches, a series of curses, and then praises. And so it moves from the state of despair to ultimately praises in God. And so that, that's where we're going to go. And so what I'm going to do is move through those four movements, and then in the end show why is this psalm, of any of them, an Advent psalm of Christ? How does this psalm lead us to Jesus? How does it show us Jesus? So first of all, the threats I face. The picture David paints here at the beginning is just amazing. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Um, the word there actually is nefesh, which is Hebrew for soul. So the, the waters have come up to my soul, but a lot of the modern translations do translate it as, as up to my neck because that's a perfect picture of what's going on in here. The troubles that fa I face are just about to drown me. My life is being threatened by all of these troubles. So to say up to my neck really works. And listen to why this works. He says, I sink in the mire where there's no foothold. I come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I'm weary with crying. My throat is parched. He's beginning to talk from the neck up now. My throat is parched. My eyes are dim from waiting on God. More, than, uh, more in number are the hairs of my head are those who hate, uh, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without curse. So now he's on the top of his head. And mighty are those who would destroy me. So what he pictures here is a man stuck in, in water up to his neck. And what he's thinking about is every aspect of me that's not being troubled by the waters is still in danger. My throat's parched. I've been calling out to you, Lord, please save me. And so even the part of me that's sticking out of the water is now dry and parched. My throat is parched. Then he thinks about his eyes. My eyes are growing dim. The, the weight of this burden that's surrounding me and pressing me down is so great that even my eyes are growing dim. And then he goes to the top of his head. And when he thinks about the top of his head, he goes, even the numbers of my hair, my hair which is sticking out of the water, reminds me of all of my enemies because my enemies are worse than that. So it's this beautiful picture. You see why neck makes a lot of sense there is because he's saying the only thing sticking out of the water is still in trouble. So David starts this song by explaining his dire situation. He's in big trouble. 
He is surrounded. Have, have you ever felt this bad? That no matter what you did, everything was against you. It was just so overwhelming. The oppression, the foes, the enemies were so overwhelming that you felt like you were sinking in water. I don't know if we felt that as deeply as David does, but when David feels it, what does he do? He writes a poem. So when he talks about the waters and the mire and everything, it's not like he's standing in a, pu- in, in a, um, a big puddle of water or something and writing a poem down. His, his image of waters is, is a picture. It's an explanation of how the troubles just continue to roll over and roll over and roll over. If you've ever gone out to the ocean during a stormy time and watched the water just crash onto the, the shore, you wonder how the shore can survive because that water is just so strong and so overwhelming. Um, I can remember seeing Lake Michigan when we lived in Chicago and the, the storms coming across and the waves just crashing. And you really, at that point, get a, a, a respect for water. It's nice and calm and fun to splash in until it gets angry and then it's overwhelming. And that's the picture David's painting for us is this is what his enemies are like. They're that powerful. They're that numerous. They're that strong. And this is, this is his cry to the Lord. Lord, I'm up to my neck. I'm going to drown. And in that time, he doesn't say, well, you know, Lord, I've been praying about this all along and the water just kept getting deep. So why would I pray now? What he says is, I'm at this point and I'm continuing to pray. Lord, it's this bad. Please save me. Lead me out of this. Get me, get me safely back to the shore. Make these troubles go away. It starts his psalm with this, this picture of how bad it can actually be. And one of the questions that comes up in this is, is what is the opposition to David that is so strong? And, and one theory is he says, what I did not steal, must I now restore? So maybe he's being accused of stealing something. I think that's way too simplistic. I think what he's showing there is, I have been righteous. I haven't done anything wrong. Must I now restore? I think it's just part of the picture. I don't know that we need to switch to from poetry to literal at that point. It's not that he's being accused of stealing. It's that he is being accused. As a matter of fact, if you just continue reading, this is often what happens in the Bible. Just continue reading. You'll find out what he's being accused of. You'll find out what his opposition is. David's uh, faithful enough to, to, uh, to tell us what the problem is. So this is the setup for the psalm. This is the introduction to the psalm, is you picture a man who's about to drown, a man who's about to go under. He is in this big of a trouble. This is his, his problem. This is everything that's been thrown against him. And so he, he cries out to the Lord. He cries out, oh God, you know my folly. It's not a confession of guilt at this point. He's simply saying, you know my folly. You know me. So even when these waves are crashing over me, even when this, this storm is about to, to swamp me utterly, oh, Lord, you know. You remember. You recount who I am. And, and he says, look, Lord, you know my folly. You know what I've done wrong. If I've done anything wrong, you're aware of it. And so he's actually at that point calling out in, in his his swamped state. He's calling out to the Lord and saying, judge me. You know, you know what I've done right and what I've run, done wrong. Lord, be with me. Remember me. So it's not necessarily a confession of guilt like Psalm 52, where David says, you know, I was conceived in sin. And, and that's when he had his thing with Bathsheba, and he's just overwhelmed with his sinfulness. You don't get that sense here. What you get here is, Lord, you know me, and, and I trust you. Would you please watch out for me? Would you do what is right by me? According to your standard, you know what's best. 
So a man in this deep of trouble, a man in this kind of desperate situation calls out to the Lord and assumes the Lord is good. He assumes that the Lord is just and will treat him justly. So that's the threat. That's the picture. That's the image of the threat that he bears. The next section is the reproaches that he bears. So I'm not going to read the whole thing again. Uh, Paul read it for us, and that, that, that should do. But let me try to summarize some of this, because these, these sections are fairly large. David's told us that he's, he's overwhelmed. Emotionally, he is just sinking in the water. And now what he talks about is, what kind of reproaches am I being accused of? Why do people hate me like this? Why are my enemies so opposed to me? And so he recounts this, this opposition that he's facing. And one of the big things that he says is, zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal is a strong emotional feeling. It, it is this, zealous almost becomes a, a, a byword now. If someone's overly zealous, they're too uppity about something. David is saying, zeal for your house consumes me. I am such a religious fanatic that I love your house. Now, if David wrote this, that can't be his temple, can it? So it could be that he's referring to his tabernacle, or it could be just his people. His house is his people. That's another way to look at it. But whatever it is, his zeal for the Lord has consumed him. He is a, a Jesus freak. He is one of those weirdos who is just so into religion. And that's how people look at him. They're looking at him and they're saying, you're, you're a nutcase. You're, you're over the moon about this God of yours. And, and we can't stand listening to you anymore. You're just a religious fanatic. And what's surprising is he says he's, he's such, he has such concern for the, the house of the Lord, for the people of the Lord, for God's temple, for all that that represents, that drunkards make song about me. They make fun of me in the gates and drunkards make song. What is he doing right now? He's writing a song about God and he says, I'm, this is what a religious fanatic I am, Lord. I'm writing this song, pouring out my heart to you, saying I'm in such trouble. I'm writing a song about you and they're making songs about me. The drunks are. That's the reproach that he bears because he is so committed to the Lord, because he is so consumed with who God is. And then he says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. That this is what a religious fanatic looks like, is my prayer is to you, O Lord. I'm not counting on my righteousness being enough. Remember, he's just said, you know my folly. You know what I've done wrong. What he says is in the midst of all this opposition, in the midst of all of these reproaches that I'm bearing, Lord, I'm turning to you. But as for me, my prayer is to you. At an acceptable time, Lord, on your timetable, when you know it's right, when you do the right thing, Lord, at an acceptable time, in the abundance of your steadfast love, because of who you are, you are a God who is filled with steadfast love. That's that Hebrew word chesed, hard to translate. It, it has to do with God's covenant faithfulness, but it's not just a legal term. It has to do with his love, his devotion to his people. So steadfast love is probably the best way to translate it. Because of your covenant love, because of your bound love to me, save me. Because of your saving faithfulness, because you are a God who saves. So what, what David is doing here is he's looking at his situation, he's looking at the opposition, he's looking at being called a religious fanatic, and he doesn't budge off of that. He doesn't say, well, maybe they're onto something, maybe I need to lighten up. What he says instead is, I'm not a religious fanatic in that I want everybody to be religious like me. I'm a religious fanatic in that 
God is filled with steadfast love. God is filled with this firm, saving love. It's God who's going to save me. So in the midst of all my troubles, in the midst of all my opposition, I'm not calling on God and saying, I'm, I'm righteous and I do everything good. I'm calling on him and saying, because you're a loving God, Lord, deliver me from this. He wants God to understand this is the way I'm being reproached. These are the reproaches that I have to bear because people don't like me. They don't like me because I love you. They don't like me because I want to do what you want to do. They don't like me because I'm going to side with you every single time. And so, of course, people hate my guts. They, they turn against me. They think I'm a bad person. So he returns again to that, that introduction, that, that threats that he faces. And he says in verse 14, deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Remember, he mentioned that earlier. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. What he does here is, is more of this Hebrew parallelism. Deliver me, let me be delivered from the mire, from the deep waters. And what's right in the center of that is my enemies. And so that's why I said when he's talking about the waters, it's not like he's in a boat sinking. His enemies are pictured by that water. Deliver me, let me be delivered. Deep water, mire, my enemies. He paints this, he's, he's, David is just such a good author. He, he writes these picture, word pictures so beautifully, and then he returns to it again to remind us of what's going on. So he says, Lord, don't let them overwhelm me. And he's, he's gotten to this point, again, not by doubting God, but by being faithful to God. So, so he's, he's walking with the Lord, and this is the response that people throw at him. Is, is they're, they're coming against him, accusing him of things he hasn't done, and they, they can't stand him. And so that's the reproach he bears. So he says in verse 18, draw near to my soul and redeem me, ransom me because, because of my enemies. Ransom me because of my enemies. Draw near to my soul, nefesh again. He mentions that word one more time. The waters are up to my nefesh. Yeah, draw near to that, draw near to my soul. So join me, come to me, see me where I'm standing in this horrible situation. Come and rescue me from this. Draw near, he says, redeem, he says, ransom. It's all of these pictures, these word pictures that are saying, Lord, I can't get out of this myself. Only you can redeem, only you can ransom, only you can draw near. Lord, do this for me. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Have you ever had that experience where, where people are opposed to you, you're meeting really bad resistance, and, and you know, people are saying bad things about you? And have you ever thought at that moment, the Lord's forgotten me? Because times are so bad, the Lord's forgotten me? David, in the middle of this, in the middle of this picture of almost drowning, he says, you know. My foes are known to you. He, he doesn't look at this and go, God, you got it wrong, or, or Lord, you fell asleep and you missed this. What he looks is he says, Lord, I'm in the middle of this, and I know you know all of this. I'm counting on you knowing all of this. I want you to know all of this, but I'm going to cry out to you too because I know you're aware, and, and if I had to inform you, why would I bother with you? But if you know me, if you know my situation, then it's you, the one, you are the one that I'm going to cry out. And so what's the response of the people to him? He says in verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So as I, my throat is parched, and, and I'm, I'm screaming for help, and you're not answering, what do the opponents have to do? 
They hand me poison. Here, have some of this. When, when I need something to refresh my sore throat from calling out to you, they, they give me sour wine, something like vinegar. They're, they're handing me this stuff, and this is their, their response to me. So his, his situation is dire. The opposition is because of his love of the Lord, his, his seeking of the Lord. And then the next section, verses 22 through 28, are imprecations. Imprecations are basically curses. If you remember that part, he says, let their table be a snare. Um, when they're at peace, let there come a trap. Let their eyes be darkened. Pour out your indignation on them. Make their camp a desolation, for they persecute me. And then at the end, he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the life of the living. What he means there is, Lord, kill them. Kill my enemies. So this is a section of the psalm that's called the imprecations. Imprecatory psalms are the psalms where the psalmist calls out for the destruction of his enemies. And this can be a problem for Christians. Um, I, I watched a video from 2010. John Piper was asked if Christians can pray imprecatory prayers. And Pastor Piper, he was still pastor at the time, sat and he looked down and 20 seconds, I counted, 20 seconds he sat there and didn't answer. He wrestled with that. He was struggling with the answer. And what he said is, I sh I'm sure slow too. So he wrestles with that question. So it, it, and he did go on and give an answer, by the way. That wasn't the end of it. But that was the response to, to somebody who has studied and written tons of stuff. Is He wrestled with that question, is can Christians pray imprecatory prayers? And why is that? Why is it such a problem? Well, because the Sermon on the Mount, frankly. In, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself said, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. For if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and give him the other also. Or a little bit later on, he says, You have heard it said, you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And then in Romans 12, Paul picks up that same thing. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So folks, can you pray an imprecatory psalm? Kind of feels like no, doesn't it? And yet, <laughs> it, it, it's not that simple because there are imprecatory psalms that are in the, or there are imprecations in the New Testament. For example, Paul says in, um, where'd it go? Oh, there it is, I'm sorry. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, Maranatha. If anyone doesn't have a love for the Lord, he curses him. In Galatians 1, where the Galatians are turning away from the gospel of grace to a gospel of, if you do these things, you're acceptable before God. And he says, but if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And if we've said before, so we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Is that an imprecatory song? Paul's pretty clear. If anybody is violating the gospel, if anybody's leading you away from the gospel of being saved by grace, let him be damned to hell for eternity, is basically what he said. 
And then in 2 Timothy 4.14, he gets personal here. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So he doesn't leave it nebulous, and if anybody, he, he names the man Alexander the coppersmith. So can we pray in precatory psalms or not? It sounds like from the Sermon on the Mount, no. But then the example from the New Testament is, well, yeah, because they did. So how are we supposed to deal with this? Oh, yeah, there's one more good one. So this is, this is Paul, right? He might be angry, having a bad day, might be sinning in, in what he says. How about this one? Revelation chapter 6. The souls of those who've been beheaded for the gospel are under the altar in heaven. And they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before we will adjudge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So perfected souls in heaven, the martyrs who are held up as an example, call out for judgment. They call out for the Lord to judge those who've, who've done this to them. How long? So I don't really have an answer now. Thank you. All right, let's pray. <laughs> I'm not done. We've, we've got some more to unpack here. So how are we supposed to handle this? How, how do we deal with this question of when can we pray imprecatory psalms and when shouldn't we? Well, first of all, there are a lot of imprecatory psalms. There, there, I counted 10 to 12 of them. So it's a, a decent number of, of curses in the Bible. And if you think of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, when you come into the land... I want a group of you to go up on this hill and a group of you to go up on this hill and shout across that valley to each other. You will yell the blessings of the Lord and you will yell the curses. So curses is not like it's something that just vanishes or that, that should never have been there to begin with. It has a place. And so that's what we have to wrestle with is what is the place? How do, how do we approach these imprecatory psalms? Well, there's a hint even in the psalms. Even in the psalm, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of a hint of when to and when not to. So in Psalm 109, verses 4 through 5, it says, In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hated me for my love. So the psalmist in 109 is saying not, oh, you know, somebody didn't like me, and so Lord, zap them. What he's saying is, Lord, I, I gave them nothing but goodness. I gave them all my love. I prayed for them. I was with them. And this is what they're returning for me. Before he goes into an imprecation on them and says, Lord, would you judge them? They're, they're being evil to me. So think about this for a moment. If we don't pray against evil in this world, are we righteous? A couple of years ago, ISIS took Egyptian Christians out on a beach Asked them to denounce Christ, and when they wouldn't, they slit their throats and killed them on the beach and videotaped it. Would it be righteous of us to look at that kind of event and not say, that is evil. The men who did that did an evil thing. That would not be righteousness to just say, oh, well, we just have to love them. There, there comes a point where you have to look evil in the face and say, this is evil, and the Lord is going to judge that. Here's the clue, though. I think this is where we can, we can begin to get a wrestle on when do we pray imprecatory psalms? Why is it okay for David to pray these imprecatory psalms? And that comes from Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but become overcome evil with good. So he doesn't say there is no vengeance. He doesn't say don't ever think about the vengeance of the Lord. What he says is, beloved, never avenge yourself. So think about David's prayer from the last section, the reproaches that he bore. Was it just, Lord, I, these people don't like me. They didn't vote for me in the last uh, kingly election. Um, they've been, you know, opposing every bit of legislation I've offered. You know, this is the king talking here. And so it's personal. I don't like them, Lord, zap them. Why does he, why does he call down these imprecations on them? Lord, these people are evil. They're opposing me because I love you. Lord, these aren't just my enemies. They are your enemies. These folks are going to judge all the righteous people in your kingdom. Anybody who's dedicated to you, these people are opposed to them. Doesn't that sound like the Isaac's example I used? Denounce Jesus Christ. No, slit your throat. Next. Denounce Jesus Christ. No, slit your throat. They're not just foes of those Egyptians. They're foes of Jesus Christ. They're, they're slaughtering his people. So that's the clue here is we don't seek vengeance on them. We don't go out and try to blow them up. We don't form a Christian army marching under a flag with a cross on it and go blow up ISIS. We don't seek vengeance for ourselves, but we can pray in precatory psalms. Lord, that's evil. Bring that to an end. Stop people who are opposing your, your gospel. Stop people who are opposing your church and, and bring your judgment on them. But again, what Paul says is what we do at that point is we leave it up to the Lord. In the end, we put it in God's hand. We say, Lord, end this however you see fit. Bring judgment to these people because we know judgment is coming. That's when Jesus returns. There will be judgment. Bring judgment on them. But Lord, if that judgment is that Jesus died for their sins, then bring them to yourself. So we're trusting, we're putting them into God's hands and we're saying, Lord, you do what you know is right with these people. And if it means their destruction, destroy them. If it means their salvation, save them. Because Paul, again, is our example. He opposed the church. He opposed the gospel. He hated it. He went out and arrested people. And God didn't kill him. God turned him to himself. So that's why what we have to do is we have to put it into God's hands and say, Lord, we trust you. You do what's right. But we can still cry out for the end of evil because we know judgment's coming. So that's where Paul, or that's where David goes, is he goes from, this is my dire situation. This is why I'm being opposed. Bring judgment to them. And in the end, even though judgment has not come yet, he praises. So he turns to the Lord and he brings his praises. He says, starting in verse 29, I'm afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. The drunkards will mock me with a song. I will praise the name of the Lord with a song. So even in, he hasn't been delivered yet. There's no sign that he's out. That first part says, let your salvation set me on high. I haven't gotten there yet, Lord, but I'm going to praise you. Because even in my dire situation, I still know you're a good God. I still know that you're loving and you're worth praise. You're worthy to be praised. I'll praise the name. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. 
I will praise the Lord, and that will be better than offering a sacrifice. That will make him more happy for me to delight in him than it would to just be offering a hollow sacrifice. Let heaven and earth praise him. It's not enough for me. Let everything praise him. David immediately thinks globally, the world should be praising God because even in, even in the face of my opposition, even with the reproaches I bear, he is worthy to be praised. Let everything praise him. I love this God. He really is a, a, a religious fanatic, isn't he? I mean, really, come on, guy. You know, This is the heart of a man who is consumed with the goodness of God. This is a person who knows God. He's, he knows God knows him. And even in the midst of his trouble, he can sing out like this. And he can cry to God and, and Lord, please do this. This is not David saying, I will bribe God. Lord, if you will deliver me, then I'll praise you. If you'll do this for me, I'll do that. Because I know you like praise. I know you like, you know, people singing your name. So I'll get around to that if you'll just deliver me. But you got to deliver me first. He's still in the middle of it. He's not bribing God with praise. He is praising God with praise. There's a huge difference. And I went looking for my notes from Jonah because I, I thought perhaps Jonah may have quoted some of this. But do you remember Jonah's song of, in the belly of the whale? If you send me back to the temple, I'll praise you. And when, when I'm returned to Jerusalem, oh, Lord, I'm going to offer you praise. Jonah takes a, very, he takes a handful of, of psalms and he twists them around a little bit. Because you think he's delivered at that point. He writes this beautiful song of praise, but he's not there. He's still got to get to Nineveh. And then when he gets to Nineveh and God delivers him, he sits and pouts. That's a person who doesn't love God. David is still in the middle. He's essentially in the belly of the whale at this point, And he's just saying, Lord, you are so good. You are so wonderful. I want all of the world to praise you. He's the, the anti-Jonah, <laughs> the non-Jonah, if you will. And in the end, he says, the Lord hears the needy. Lord, I, I recognize I am in bad shape. I can't do anything about this. I am helpless. But Lord, I count on the fact that you hear the, the needy. I praise you for that. And I love you for that. So that's basically the psalm in a nutshell. That kind of, kind of wraps it all up. It was a big psalm, but I, hopefully I've, I've encapsulated it. If I didn't get your favorite verse, I'm sorry. There's probably some verse in there you're going, I can't wait till he preaches on it. And if I missed it, I, I beg your pardon. I want to get to the other half. Why on earth is this an Advent psalm of Christ? This is David suffering. This is David waffling under this, this oppressing threat. This is David crying out to the Lord. Why is that an Advent Psalm of Christ? How does that point us to Jesus? Well, here's how. First of all, the most frequently quoted verse of a psalm is Psalm 110. That's most frequently quoted in the New Testament. It's all over the place. But it's one, one verse out of 110. The most widely quoted is Psalm 69. And by widely, what I mean is there's a handful of verses from this quoted throughout the New Testament. There's more here. There's six places where this is quoted in the New Testament, whereas 110 is quoted a lot more, but it's only one verse. So there's a wide swath of that. So this imprecation, they didn't have problems with, with going to an imprecatory psalm in the New Testament. They went right to it a number of times. So let's take a look at some of these. And now I'm not going to do them necessarily in the verses order in the psalm, nor necessarily in the order from the New Testament. So you're going, okay, so you're going to make this up. <laughs> I'm trying to do it thematically, okay? So let's look at this, and, and we'll begin to see how this points us to Christ, how this leads us to Christ. Verse 4, they hate me without cause. They hate me without cause. That's what David said. 
in John 14, 25, but the word is written that in their law that may be fulfilled, they hate me without cause. Jesus says this. He quotes it himself. He says, this is why it was written, they hate me without cause, so that they'll know. The context of that is a little bit bigger. Chapter 15 is just at the end of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the Passover, and Jesus is beginning to teach. So in 15 and 16, he'll address his, uh, his disciples. In 17, he'll offer what's called the high priestly prayer. So this is Jesus, basically his final words to his disciples. That's the context. Listen to what he says uh, right around this. Uh, just before this, he says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. In verse 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Verse 23, he says, whoever hates me hates my father also. So that idea, they hate me without cause, when he talks about his reproaches that he's bearing, he's like, this is just, they just hate me because I love you. Why do they hate me because I love you? Because they hate you. And Jesus picks that up and he says the exact same thing. You guys, I'm about to send you out into the world. I'm about to, to, to put my message with you. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I will lead you, but understand you are going to meet opposition. Exactly what's going on in the psalm. David is a religious fanatic, and people hate his guts for it. Why? Because they don't love God. That's why Jesus ends by saying, if they hate me, they hate my Father. I'm here to show you who God is, and if you hate that, it's not me you hate, it's my Father you hate. So that's the first one, is this, this reproach, this hate without cause, this opposition to Jesus. Now let's take a look for a moment at the implications, the curses applied. Verses 22 and 23, there's, let their table be a snare, let there be a stumbling block, make their eyes dark and bend their back. That's what's going on there. And in Romans 11, 9 through 10, Paul says, David said this. So this is David saying this, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What's the context where he's saying that? Who's he saying that about? Well, in Romans chapter 11, what he's talking about is he's, he's answering the question, all right, so God did all this stuff. Why is it the Jews are not believing? Why is it that the nation of Israel has largely turned away from the gospel? And so in chapter 11, he begins to unpack that and answer that question. So he says in uh, verse 7, What then? Israel have failed to attain what, was, what it was seeking. The elect attained it, but the rest were hardened, as it's written. And then he, he quotes uh, um, Isaiah 29, and then he quotes David. So he's, he's saying these imprecations, these, these curses, are actually applied to the Jews, which I'm sure the Jews would have been really surprised to hear that. But again, the problem is they opposed Jesus. They hated Jesus. So it's not like they hated Jesus, but they love Yahweh, because Jesus is the full expression of who Yahweh is. What he's saying is the elect, there are some of them who are saved, but the rest hate him. And so let these curses fall on them. Then the next one that really stands out is verse 25. Verse 25 is, let there can't be the desolate. And that's quoted, we, we talked about it a while ago in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is, has spent time with the apostles, with his disciples. He leads them out to the mountain. He ascends into heaven. And he tells them, now you go back to Jerusalem and you wait until the power from heaven comes upon you. So they're in Jerusalem and they're huddled down and they're waiting and they're saying, well, what do we do? And as they look around, they go, you know, there's only 11 apostles left. Judas killed himself. How do we analyze that? How do we understand that? Peter says, for it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. 
and let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter looked at Psalm 69, at the imprecations, and what he saw was, that's Judas. The, the foes that, that David was calling curses down on, that's Judas, because Judas opposed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. And so he looks at that and he says, let there can't be a desolation. This is what God had said would happen to those who oppose Jesus. And then the next thing is, let another take his office. And so they say, well, we've got to elect another apostle. That's what the scriptures are telling us to do. So the imprecations from the psalm are not ignored in the New Testament. They're applied in the New Testament. But they're not applied to people I don't like. They're, people, they're applied to people who, God, who are opposed to God who are warring against God. That's how he implies it, applies it, is those who opposed Jesus, who killed Jesus, who turned away from Jesus, who betrayed Jesus, those people are who the imprecations apply to. So the next one, the crucifixion is predicted in this, and, and Jesus will overcome his enemies. In verse 21, it says, they gave me poison for food. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, instead of saying poison, they use the word for gall. Gall was this excretion from uh, the liver, and it was this bitter thing that was put into food to make it really super bitter. I mean, it's kind of gross anyway, excretions. Um, I don't prefer excretions in my food, thank you. So that, they translate the word poison from Hebrew. They, the Greek version translates it as gall. Um, and it says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Matthew doesn't say it specifically. He shows it. Matthew 23, or 27, verse 33, he says, When they came to the place called Golgotha, that is the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. They gave me gall for my food. And he tasted it, but he wouldn't drink it. And then in verse 48, a little while later, And one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed to give it to him to drink. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's, he's calling out to the Lord. He is suffering a horrible death. And what do they give him to drink? Sour wine. It's the same thing David said. That's exactly what David was talking about. So when, when they do this, this is that picture from the psalm, is, is that opposition that David faced is exactly what G Jesus faced on the cross. It fulfilled that picture. So then the resurrection is also pictured. In verse 9, the first half of verse 9, verse 9 gets mentioned in two different places. It's split in half. So the first part of verse 9, zeal for your house. This is from John chapter 2. Jesus has cleansed the temple, and John, he does it at the beginning of the gospel. He goes in and he cleanses the temple. He turns over tables, and the, um, the people are all amazed at it. John puts this little statement, and he says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has consumed me. So then the Jews challenge him, and Jesus says, Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And what John says is he's speaking of his own body. So even in that zeal for his temple has consumed me, zeal for his house, that's a promise, that's a picturing of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus interprets it by saying, I'm going to cleanse this temple, but you know what? You're going to tear it down, and in three days I'm going to raise it up anyway. So we got the crucifixion in the last section, the sour wine and the gall, and now it's talking about Jesus' resurrection, that temple being brought back up. And then the last one is the other half of verse 9, um, the reproaches that were born. And it said, in, in Romans 15, Paul says, uh, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. So Jesus is saying, what he's saying here is, is 
The reproaches of those who hate God fell on Jesus. That's the picture. And isn't that what was happening there? Isn't that what was going on with David? Is David loves God. They hate God, and so they hate David. The, the, Paul picks it up and he says, that's what happened with Jesus. Is Jesus was God. They hated God, so they hated Jesus. The context, though, the way Paul applies it is kind of helpful. You who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and do not please yourself. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Because for Christ didn't come to please himself. He came to bear your reproaches. He came to bear your burden. So this imprecatory psalm, the psalm that you would think would just never apply in the New Testament because Jesus is all um, cupcakes and butterflies, right? Uh, love your neighbor, be nice to everybody. It richly, it, it thoroughly, it actually preached the gospel. Jesus came. He was opposed. He was hated. He was betrayed. He died. He was given bad things to drink when he was, he was suffering and died. And then he rose again. And at the end of that, what it all comes back to is he bore our reproaches. So the, the, the wrath of God that we were due, he took upon himself. The reproach that we were due from God, he bore. And then he turns around and, and the way it works out is the reproach now he bears, we bear. Because we're his people. So this is why Psalm 69 is an Advent Psalm of Christ. Is it just told us the gospel the way the New Testament read it. It told us about zeal for God's house. It told us about the opposition that we'll lead in life. So this is the Advent Psalm of Christ. This is a picturing of who Christ is. This is a coming of Jesus. And it was in a song that David sung. That's one of the things I love about the Psalms, is this was David, not speaking metaphorically from his throne and looking out the window and saying, oh, poor people suffer. This was David saying, no, I'm in the midst of this. I am crying out, Lord, this is actually happening to me. It's very emotional. It's very personal. It's this picture of him drowning. He paints this picture of a man just up to here with water. He makes it extremely personal. And yet, that's picked up and applied to Jesus. So when Muhammad wrote the Quran, it was the angel came to him and pushed the words out of him. He, he wasn't experiencing any of this. It wasn't written from, from Muhammad's perspective. One, one uh, Arabic uh, scholar said, none of these words are Muhammad's words. The, the Quran is all, God, is all Allah's words. It's not Muhammad's. So it's this other thing. It's very detached. God doesn't write his word that way. He writes this poem in and through and, and in the midst of David's suffering. And it makes it very personal and very real. And then not only that, does he write it through David and his suffering. When it comes time to apply it, God himself takes on humanity. Frail, breakable, killable humanity. And he goes and he lives that song for us. This is a God who is that personal, who is that loving, who is that in touch with us. So we can cry out with David, Lord, you know me. You know my enemies. You know the situation. Because Jesus is saying, I came and I walked in this for you. I'm, I bore your reproach before my father, and now you're going to bear my reproach for me. Because people hate me too. It's a beautiful way that God communicates with us. It's just always, every time I get to something like this, where it's God speaking and it's actually in David's mouth, it always blows my mind. God is that personal. His word is not detached and other. It's not some foreign language. 
It's us. It's with us. It walks with us. It talks with us. So this Christmas season, as we look at Psalm 69 as an Advent Psalm of Christ, think about the personal touch there, that, that personal interaction that Jesus came all the way down. He didn't wave along above the heavens or, or yell it from the clouds. He came all the way down, stepped foot on earth, walked in our souls, walked in the, the, our shoes, and bore our reproach. And that's the Advent. That's the message of Advent. That, that baby that we're going to celebrate in a, in a few weeks is God incarnate. Come to bear our reproach. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us all religious zealots. Lord, that you would make us religious fanatics, Jesus freaks. And Lord, the way you do that is not by threatening to kill us if we don't obey your law. Lord, the way you do that is by showing us the grace that you give us. God is so wonderful, so filled with grace, so filled with love. How can we not love him back? Lord Jesus, thank you for bearing our reproach before your Father. Thank you for bearing the Father's reproach before evil men. And Lord, thank you that the zeal for that house consumed you, and in three days it was risen again. Lord, help us to see the beauty, experience the beauty, especially through the Psalms as, as these beautiful word pictures are painted. Help us to experience that. And Lord, would you grab our hearts? I pray that you would just grab our hearts and remind us of how you care so deeply that you came and you, you were born in a manger. Lord, that you walked and learned Hebrew and grew before, in statue before God and man. And Lord, when you came preaching and teaching, you met opposition for us to draw us to yourself. Lord, a beautiful message. May Christmas be beautiful for us again. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.